Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this one I entitled Hot Topics in CT from the literature, uh, January 2011, so it's the beginning of the new year, or better known as what I read during the winter break and found interesting. So let me go through a number of different things with you. A couple I'll start off with are kind of unusual, but I thought they're worthwhile talking about, and then some other things which tend to be a bit more practical. So if I showed you this case, and I'll show you two images, there's a large mass coming off the stomach, extends near the spleen, and if I was looking at this case and the two images, I would think about a gastrointestinal stromal tumor, large exophytic mass coming off the stomach, maybe it could be an unusual lymphoma, and uh, I guess metastasis or a possibility. You could consider an abscess with a large mass, but this doesn't look like an abscess. This is surely a tumor to me. And again, I would favor a just tumor, and here might be a differential diagnosis. Well, I was very surprised when we got the pathology back in this case, and it was uh, myeloma. It was diagnosed as an extraosseous myeloma. And there's an article, there's an article seven years ago. Now, I wasn't reading a seven-year-old article, and I found these, uh, this article when I was looking back a bit. And in that article, they made the point... Uh, uh, that uh, extraosseous myeloma can occur in about 5% of cases of myeloma, age range from 40 to 75. Abdominal disease is rare, but when it does occur, it can involve stomach, as in this case, liver, pancreas, mesentery, or abdominal wall. The most common extraosseous site is in the upper airway, and again, when the GI tract's involved, is mainly the small bowel. The most recent article was this article by Hall talking about CT and PET-CT and MRI features and again made the point that extraosseous myeloma can affect many different organs and mimic other malignancies. And they did a very nice job presenting a number of different cases, um, made the point, of course, that it's associated with a poor prognosis and this becomes important to recognize and diagnose and again, can mimic other disorders. So again, something to think about. It's rare, but if you see bony changes as well, you should think about that possibility. And here was just a list of all of the different sites of involvement. So I thought that was an interesting article, short, nice pictorial essay, well worth reading. Now, what else? There was a good article I read about the aorta. There were a number of articles I read in the aorta, but one was about the aortic arch. And so I'll start with this question, how important is a right aortic arch? Well, the fact is we commonly see right aortic arches as an incidental finding. Remember on chest x-ray, if you weren't careful, you'd think the patient had a right paratracheal mass. But this article by Cannon Goodwin goes through it in more detail and made the point that a right aortic arch can occur in isolation, but can also occur in association with congenital heart disease, especially tetralogy of Fallot and Truncus. And... Um, they made the point that when you think about the embryologic double aortic arch model by Edwards, it helps explain many of the variations of the right aortic arch. So let me just go through some of the stuff about the right aortic arch. And the reason I found this interesting was in the last month, I've had about four or five very unusual cases ranging from just an aberrant uh, left subclavian with a right arch to a double arch. So some of the facts they found. Frequency under 3%, probably reality is under 1%. Most patients are asymptomatic, incidental finding maybe on chest x-ray, though other patients we've seen present with dysphagia, dyspnea. I haven't seen hypertension or congestive heart failure, but that can occur. And percentage-wise, 0.1% of adults. Uh, they remind you in this article that there are six paired arteries arising from the aortic sac during embryogenesis. 
with the fourth left arch forming the normal aortic arch. And so things that vary in terms of the paired um, uh, arteries or part of the pair is what's going to create some of these variations. And the anomalies are, go from an aberrant left subclavian artery to mirror image branching to a right arch with left descending aorta to a right arch with an aberrant brachiocephalic to right arch with isolated left subclavian to a double aortic arch to a cervical aortic arch. So let's look at some of these um, uh, and let's look at the aberrant left subclavian. And I've seen a number of those, so let's use that one first. And what happens is, and I'll show you an example in a moment, the left subclavian arises as the last arch vessel and crosses from right to left in the patient with a right-sided arch, and it crosses posterior to the esophagus. So it can cause indentation. It can also cause symptoms, particularly when you have dilatation of the aberrant subclavian, and that's called the diverticulum of cumarol. And when the uh, diverticulum of cumarol are large, it does cause dysphagia. So here's just a nice example. Right aortic arch, very nicely shown in the 3D. You see that aberrant left subclavian on the volume rendered images, and I'll show it to you in another set of images here. It's that last vessel, you know, it's coming right down and around. And you can see when I, um, in this example, very nicely, you know, giving you a good look at that aberrant uh, left subclavian. And here it is a few more rotations showing it very nicely. So it's a nice variation. Um, you can see in this case the patient's left carotid, you see the right carotid, you see the right anominate, but you can see that left aberrant subclavian is posterior positioned, it's the last vessel, here's a view from behind. Okay. Again, most of those patients will be asymptomatic unless there's this large ductus of cumarol. Now, um, another type of anomaly is the double aortic arch. So let me look at that one. And it's the most common symptomatic vascular aortic arch anomaly. Typically, the right arch is larger, posterior, and more cephalid than the left arch in two-thirds of patients. And the descending aorta is usually contralateral to the dominant arch. The trachea compression is most common. And again, in these patients, that uh, ductus or that diverticulum, rather, of cumarol is not uncommon. And so let me just show you a nice example Here's a, a case where you can see that double arch, but again, we're showing from a very posterior and anterior projection, and I do find that the views from above or below are best, and here's just a beautiful view where you see that mirror branching of the carotid and subclavian, and you see the perfect ring, but you see the right arch is larger than the left arch, just very, very nicely shown. And there's a range of variations. You can have a total double arch, as in this case, or you can have incomplete arches, which you'll see in this example, where it's almost a double arch, but it doesn't complete that full circle, doesn't come in media anteriorly, um, and I'll show it to you again. This case has very nicely that, um, that the cumarol uh, diverticulum, beautiful example right here, and I'll show it to you in a few different images, so you get a feel of why that's the type of patient that's gonna be symptomatic, Here's a view from above showing you that incomplete uh, uh, double aortic arch. So again, a range of variations. Even with the incomplete double arch, the patients can be symptomatic when they have this diverticulum of cumarol present. And here's just a few more views. So again, very nice. And I could show you a number of different anomalies as well. And we're doing some work on that. And I'll come back to that at a different time.
Now, another thing that um, I just had a couple of cases and I had the question about with this VIP at Hopkins who I incidentally picked up a very tiny pulmonary embolism. The question is, do you need to treat that patient? Treating a patient with a PE is not simple in the sense you give them uh, anticoagulant therapy, put them on Plavix, you can have all sorts of issues of bleeds intracranially, intraabdominally, intramuscular, and you've got to take medication for six months, so it's not trivial. So the question was, are all PEs needed to be treated? Now, the reality in this case, we, people said, well, it's a small PE, it's incidental, we probably don't need to treat. In the end, they treat it. So I think this is more of a theoretical article, brings up a good discussion point, but I don't know anyone who's willing to say, oh, it's a PE, not important, let's not treat. So obviously, when you have extensive PEs, a case like this, no one's arguing. Treatment, aggressive management, necessary. But what about this PE? Look at that small PE in a branch vessel, right, pulmonary artery, lower lung. Now, we see this more commonly in oncology patients. Notice this patient has liver metastasis. We see it more commonly in patients who've had surgery. Notice again, it's most common in that pulmonary artery in the right lower lung, very nicely seen there. And you can see it on the sagittal view, coronal view. You can see it on the 3D reconstructions. It's a small PE, but it's definitely present. And I show it to you in a different number of different projections. This was missed initially. I was doing thin sections of the abdomen. But again, it's there. What do you do about it? Well, this article by Sue made the point, peripheral focal filling defects in the pulmonary arteries, which we term dots and not traditional embolic clots, are not associated with detectable lower extremity clot load and may represent normal embolic activity originating from the lower extremity venous valves. Now, that's a great theory. But I don't think anyone is going to not treat. It's just the risk-reward becomes very, very hard. The peripheral clots they were talking about had a mean of about 2.5 millimeters. They appeared focal and rounded with a dot-like appearance. But, you know, it's an interesting thought. And I agree with the authors. We suggested more in-depth understanding about small peripheral PEs is needed. The necessity of conventional anticoagulant therapy should be critically reviewed in patients with subsegmental PE and minimal clot burden. But again, I don't know anybody who's willing to say, do not treat. Um, it's interesting that none of these DOT patients um, in their study had um, DVT compared to 58% of patients with classic PEs who had DVTs. But again, that means 42% of classic PEs didn't have DVT. So the fact you don't have a DVT is great, but that doesn't mean anything. So I think it's something to think about, but it's something that uh, um, no, one, no one is going to leave alone. I think that becomes very, very important to recognize. The next thing I read a little bit about was uh, the CT evaluation of urothelial tumors, and it's something we've been interested in. We've published a number of articles on transitional cell carcinomas. Uh, just some of the basic facts is about 15% of renal tumors, a little bit less. The majority, 90% of transitional cells, 9% of squamous cells, and 1% of mucinous adenocarcinomas. They're in older patients, a slightly older group than we see with renal cell, but there's lots of overlap. It's more common in males than females by 3 to 1. And importantly, 40% of patients with upper tract transitional cell carcinomas will develop metachronous transitional cells of the lower urinary tract. So the point is, we all know if you see one lesion, keep looking. The CT findings are very variable. You can see single or multiple filling defects that compress the renal sinus fat. 
it can be subtle pelvic hill seal irregularities, stricture-like. It could be focal diffuse mural thickening. It can be calocele amputation. It can be tumor-filled distended calyces. So some of these you can see by the description are easy to recognize. Some are more difficult. Transitional cell carcinomas can simulate other processes. They can simulate infection at times. When they're larger, they can simulate hypovascular papillary renal cell carcinomas. Infiltrating can look like lymphoma, you might think of metastasis, and occasionally even infection like XGP, though usually that's more mass-like and has large stackholm calculi, but it's something you can consider. In this article by Zhu, uh, they made the point that CT urography has utility in the surveillance of upper tract tumors. Urethelial thickening is an important sign of tumor, especially in the pelvic calcial systems. And they also found that when stratified by location, urothelial thickening was more predictive of tumor in the pelvic calcial system than in the ureter. So if it's thickening, particularly with enhancement, you really have to worry. In contrast, they found that filling defects were more predictive in the ureter than in the renal pelvis and collecting systems. Remember, filling defects can be due to non-opaque stones, can be due to clot, uh, can be due to fungal ball, but again, you really always need to think about tumor, of course, as well. And here's just some nice examples. Here's what you would call an infiltrating process on early phase imaging. Could this be a renal cell carcinoma, hypovascular? It's a thought, but this is really infiltrating, and you can see it very nicely, particularly on the coronal and the 3D coronal views. And you can see it very nicely as you go to excretory phase imaging where there's distortion of the calyces. It's important to emphasize that excretory phase imaging is critical for detecting transitional cell carcinoma. Yes, in this case, we saw it in early phase imaging as well. But sometimes, particularly with small lesions, with strictures, it's only going to be on the excretory phase. And here is very nicely with CT urography showing you the distortion, disruption, and irregularity of the upper pole calyces. I find that the volume rendered and MIP images, in this case was showing MIP images, is particularly helpful in detecting the uh, transitional cell carcinoma. And here's just a couple more views, just very nicely shown in that patient. Another example. Here you see what looks like hydronephrosis. You look hard, there's a mass in the renal pelvis. I'll show it to you a little bit better. It shows nicely on the 3D views. There's a little bit of subtle enhancement. Remember, we think about transitional cell as not enhancing, but it does enhance, but not to the degree we typically will expect to see with most renal cell carcinomas. Here it is nicely in the coronal view. You see a soft tissue mass filling in the renal pelvis. And here it is really nicely shown on excretory phase imaging. So just a very nice example of a classic transitional cell carcinoma. And here are those images side by side. You're not going to confuse this with renal cell carcinoma, infection, XGP, or anything else. This is classic transitional cell carcinoma. And there's another article, again, um, Prado makes the point, familiarity with the unusual features of urothelial tumors uh, will help you make the correct diagnosis and uh, develop adequate treatment options. Again, one of the things this article mentions, as well as other articles have, is that it's not uncommon to miss these lesions, particularly when they're small. And again, very important technique. Again, delayed phase imaging, but CT urography becomes very, very important. Again, overlap at times can be somewhat difficult. So that's a number of different things. And why don't we stop there, and I'll come back with part two 
and tell you everything I learned about uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, but we're afraid to ask. Okay, see you in a bit. <laughs>